Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Frank Zappa, the original shock rocker, a workaholic who recorded 62 albums in less than 30 years, a moving mustache with eyebrows and hair, a gaunt body draped in elegant rags. As a composer and band leader, he pushed genre boundaries from pop to classical, rhythm and blues to musique concrète. As a singer, he conjured the absurd and lauded the profane. As king of the freaks, he lived a wild life without rules on sex, family, or time. But this isn't about Frank Zappa. This is about Gail Zappa, a mod icon in swinging London who joined the liberated ladies who embraced groupie life as a sacred act became the queen of the freaks and somehow found herself a mother of convention until Frank's early death obliged her to step up and rule the kingdom on her own. This story is about a girl. She had doe eyes and a plump pout, a doll face shaped by long bangs and shoulder-length chestnut hair. Teenage Abigail Slopeman was a mod knockout, the kind of beauty that made the 1960s swing. Gail was born in Hollywood, and since her dad was a commanding officer in the U.S. Navy, she moved with the family wherever he went which is how she ended up a teenager in London at a time of full-blown youth quake. But what fun could Gail have as a secretary in her father's London office? She would sit and daydream, but not like most young women. Gail had visions, sometimes of a dark future. She didn't think she could affect those visions, but they prepared her for what she viewed as the world's fate and her own. In the midst of an ordinary workday in March 1964, a disembodied voice spoke to her. 
What she heard was a poem. She typed it as it came. It was her father's birthday, the 16th. All her life she would remember this moment. The words that flowed through her, like a mantra from the spheres, promised she would be protected and loved for all time. She just had to wait for the right person, a man, the one. This moment led her to believe she didn't need to follow any particular career or life trajectory. Trusting fate, she set out to find the one. She was in the right place at the right time, the epicenter of the burgeoning British rock scene, going to clubs and mingling with the who's who of the day. At a party for the Rolling Stones, she looked around and saw a sea of people wearing jeans and having a blast. To Gail, it felt raw and real. She saw herself in the crowd. This was who she needed to be. She crushed on Chris Stamp, manager of The Who and brother of actor Terrence Stamp, but Gail understood that it was just sex for entertainment. While modeling, she met fashion photographer Terrence Donovan. He was the first man to seduce her, which was a nice change, though she was finding that free love had a lot more emphasis on the free and not so much with the love. And then Gail's dad was transferred again, this time to New York City. Her London flatmate, Anya Butler, an upper-class girl who worked for The Who, went with her and the two fell into the American scene, where she befriended Amaretta Marks, a great singer and actress who also dated Eric Burden and Bill Wyman. One night, Marks brought Gail to a party for Tom Jones. Gail was not thrilled, she despised commercial musicians. Then, with Marks gone and the night coming to an end, Gail realized Jones thought Gail was his companion for the night. Panicked, she dashed into another room, found a telephone, and called her mother. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, her mom said. And by the way, Lou called. He's looking for you. It was record producer Lou Adler, one of Gail's boyfriends. Can you call him and tell him to send over a car? There was no doubt in her mind as she made her escape. Certainly, the one was not going to be a cheesy pop singer, right? Anya suggested that they hitchhike to L.A. She was trying to break the Who's My Generation album, so when they got there, they made the rounds of rock radio, charming DJs with their best English rose stick. They were determined to sell America on an anthem proclaiming the era's spiritual shift. When Roger Daltrey started out that business about getting put down just because they got around, Gail and Anya knew what he meant. The girls were proud to shed Victorian morals for liberation and decided to embrace the pejorative term groupies as a badge of honor. Gail dated around and appeared in her boyfriend Bobby Jameson's scene documentary, Mondo Hollywood. She was working at a club called The Trip, but her boss asked her if she wanted to transfer to another joint he owned, the Whiskey A Go-Go. In 1966, no groupie worth her backstage pass would say no. The Whiskey was the musical anchor of the Sunset Strip. Then she hit a groupie milestone. She started dating Joe Butler, drummer for The Lovin' Spoonful, and it felt kind of like a real relationship. They went on dates, but then Gail fell for the band's guitar player, Zal Yanofsky, 
the band warned her that she wasn't his type. Even though she had a good thing going, she couldn't resist the challenge. A few days later, Joe showed up at Zal's room and silently handed over Gail's toothbrush. She was ambivalent about the conquest, though. Maybe she was becoming the wrong kind of groupie. She wasn't just sleeping around for the hell of it, after all. She considered herself a vestal virgin, providing divine arrows to keep the flame of rock burning bright. Musicians needed such energy and inspiration to push their sounds and lyrics to further edges. In turn, listeners' minds could be shifted to alternative ways to think and live. She wondered if she should make music herself and first got a gig writing R&B lyrics, then recorded a single with L.A. scene maker Kim Fowley. It was a satire of the cheesy pop couple Sonny and Cher called Bunny and Bear. He only pressed 50 copies. Too bad. Gail liked the dark comedy of it. Foley moved in L.A.'s freak scene, and Gail soon met more people who made Swing in London look like a church picnic. She loved it. And as she became more bold in her own freakiness, she decided to try LSD. Tripping on acid, her mind sharpened to a single thought. All the rules people gave you were suggestions. You could simply ignore them and make a life with no rule. In her altered state, Gail went with Anya to a house in the center of freakdom. Laurel Canyon. On one side, a fellow groupie was moving between both Jim and Van Morrison. On the other side, people were furiously working on some project. From the fury emerged a gaunt man with black hair, a thick mustache, and a piercing stare. He was so... dirty. Unnerving. But why was her heart beating so hard? Gail was mesmerized. Anya, though, was terrified and demanded they leave. Gail couldn't stop thinking about the guy she'd met. He was a songwriter and producer named Frank Zappa. One day, she saw him at a bank and went to talk to him. She lost her nerve and turned back. Back at the whiskey on another afternoon, Gail caught her co-worker, Pamela Zerubica, staring at her. She stared back, breaking the bizarre deadlock. Pamela said, come to dinner. It turned out Gail had been to Pamela's house before. She lived in Laurel Canyon. Her roommate was Frank Zappa. During dinner, Frank called Pamela to pick him up at the airport. Don't bring anyone, he said. Pamela ignored that second request. When she and Gail greeted Frank at the airport, he walked up to Gail and put his briefcase between her feet. They stood nose to nose for a moment. You're cute, he said. The rest of the evening, they gabbed about the tour. And finally, Pamela said, I'm going to sleep in Frank's twin bed so you guys can have my double. She handed Gail a black slip. Gail had long since learned to just roll with these things. She and Frank lay together until he passed out. The next morning, Gail woke up to two things a dark eye concentrated on her face and the voice from her talisman saying, this is your chance. Although Frank Zappa seemed like a natural-born freak, he had come into the scene by way of a pretty square start. 
A sickly child of a military father, Frank bounced around the U.S. as a child. He ended up a West Coast teen in love with R&B and classical music by even turns, which made him deeply nerdy and unpopular. He married his teen sweetheart and tried to make a living as a musician and composer. He bought a five-track studio with money he got for scoring a B-movie and tried and failed to get a record deal. His marriage fell apart and he moved into his studio and worked non-stop scoring films and making weird sounds. In March 1965, someone asked him to make a party tape. So Frank took the $100 and he and a girlfriend jumped on the bed and made erotic noises. It turned out to be a sting operation and Frank served 11 days in jail for pornography. The experience turned him hard against authority and conventional morality. It also put the fear of prison into him. He decided drugs, in particular, were not worth the risk. In the 1960s rock scene, that made him an outsider. He joined an R&B band called the Soul Giants and first convinced them to rename themselves the Mothers, shorthand for motherfuckers, a term of endearment among jazz musicians, and then pushed the band from blues-based music into weirder territory. They found a manager and gained a following in the underground that netted them a contract with the Verve label, provided they changed their name again, since the mother's was too profane. Using some of his advance money, Frank moved into his friend Pamela's house in Laurel Canyon, which he dubbed the Freak Sanctuary. He was living his best life. Nothing would ever be too profane again for Frank. In 1966, the Mothers released their double album debut, Freak Out. It was a defining statement of Zappa's vision and ambition, a mix of high art music, fits of guitar god virtuosity, and self-effacing pop masterfully arranged into a caustic, deadpan satire about the hypocrisies of the scene, the music industry, and America. Sales of the record were dismal, but word of mouth spread the mother's name across the underground, and within six months, they were headlining Albert Hall in London. But before all that, they did a disastrous promo tour that left Frank dejected as he landed at the airport that fateful day when he met Gil. Frank didn't admit it at first, but he too fell in love right away. Gail knew it was real when he sat down and played his entire collection of 45s for her. She moved into the house, but then they all moved to New York because the mothers had a long string of gigs in the village. It was a miserable time. The whole band and the Zappas lived in a cockroach-infested hotel, so cold they kept fresh milk on the window ledge. They ate grapefruit and peanut butter, which was hard on everyone, but especially for Gail, who was then pregnant. Eight months and three weeks into the pregnancy, Frank took her to City Hall to get married. They signed the license with a pen Frank bought from a vending machine. He forgot to buy a ring, so when the time came, he pinned the pen to Gail's belly. Fate had brought Gail to this, Mrs. Zappa, de facto queen of the freaks, soon-to-be mother, sealed with a pen. And then Frank left for another gig. As he walked out, he called out, 
If it's a boy, name a motorhead. If it's a girl. And in his absence, Gail named their first child as per Frank's wishes. Moon Unit Zappa. They moved into a walk-up apartment and musicians came through daily. Jimi Hendrix had known them both prior to them getting together and showed up expecting chaos. Instead, he found Frank and Gail making supper. Did marriage turn the king of the freaks soft? Any worries faded when the Zappas moved back to Laurel Canyon in 1968 into a house known as the Log Cabin. Built by a silent movie cowboy in the 20s, the 18-room house had a huge stone fireplace, dramatic chandelier, and sat over a pond surrounded by foliage. Frank named it Freak Central, and so it was. The doors were never locked, and a daily procession of weirdos and rock royalty mixed through the house while Frank smoked, drank coffee, and worked. A typical day might see Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful dropping by in the afternoon, the Who later, and then Frank's high school friend Don, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, in the evening, with everyone jamming till late at night. Or was it morning? Daylight meant nothing because Frank's internal clock dictated everything. One of Gil's roles was tiptoeing around the house, shushing all the wild-haired girls, wannabes, mothers, children, and pets, because everyone had to be quiet when Frank was asleep. When Frank was up, the house was abuzz with new ideas and sounds. He'd sit at the piano or desk in the living room, moving back and forth among projects. Any musician who might walk in would be schooled on the latest new thing, drafted into some experiment, or ignored, depending on Frank's mood. The one thing that Frank always seemed to be in the mood for was sex. Even a casual listener of the music would realize he was obsessed. Since Frank didn't do drugs, sex was his outlet. At home, no one wanted the room next to his and Gail's. On the road, Frank was insatiable. He'd walk up to a woman at a club after a gig and ask, I'm looking for a fuck, are you available? If he went without groupies for any length of time, he'd call Gail and ask her to fly out. The free love movement, freak scene, and groupies were his pool for one-night stands, fuck buddies, and road girlfriends. They had sex in different ways, with different devices, and in different configurations, and he sang about it all in lyrics ranging from prurient to puerile. Women close to him swore he respected whatever boundaries they enforced. For example, in England, he proposed that a girl named Pauline Butcher come work for him in L.A., asking, Do you think if we fucked, you could still work for me as my secretary? Although she didn't sleep with him then, she did move to the West Coast, only to find that Frank was married and had a baby. And he actually did want her to be his secretary. Pamela thought Gail was paranoid about her and reacted defensively when Gail told Pamela she was thinking of writing a book about groupies. Got any stories? Pamela denied any dalliance with Frank and did work as his secretary for a few years before realizing she had no life except his and left. It would be no wonder if Gail had been paranoid because Frank's biggest obsession was with groupies, even just the concept of them. Like Gail, he believed they made, quote, the ultimate gesture of worship, 
human sacrifice. He sang about them and welcomed them into his hotel rooms, his house, and eventually even the recording studio. One night, some girls calling themselves the Laurel Canyon Ballet Company showed up at the cabin wearing only bibs, diapers, and pigtails. Frank invited them to dance at the mother's show and renamed them the GTOs, Girls Together Outrageously. Miss Pamela, a.k.a. Pamela DeBars, was one, and she relished, in her words, tormenting uptight folks with outrageous teenage nakedness as part of the show. Frank put the GTOs on retainer and recorded an album for them. For the girls, a dream come true. Bonafide recording artists. Gail wasn't part of that group, though. She just wasn't together with girls like that anymore. She was a wife and mother now. Although she made cameos on albums, she never made one herself. Some of Frank's groupies got their own rooms in the house, and others got domestic roles. Miss Pamela was a groovy governess for the kids and became a lifelong friend of Gail's. With Gail's encouragement, DeBars wrote the book Gail had considered, titled I'm With The Band. Although DeBars loved her friend fiercely, she was a bit envious of Gail. She had gotten the groupie golden ticket and had it all. The two would sit and chat over endless cups of tea, and it was a great solace to Gail. She could be benignly envious of DeBars, too. She was still completely free. While the sexual revolution blossomed around her house, it was closed off to Gail. Frank loved to brag that Gail had been an excellent groupie and swore it didn't matter that she made the scene with lots of rockers. But after they got married, he didn't want her to sleep with anyone else but him. The women didn't really bother Gail. What was starting to bother her was that the log cabin's legend drew ever freakier freaks to her living room. People were there for days before anyone asked who they were. Frank would say, don't worry about it. Gail found a groupie eating her last stick of butter like a banana. A band would show up at 3 a.m. And one day, someone removed the floor from the kitchen. Frank loved satirizing domesticity, so the floorless kitchen must have made him howl. But everyone else in the house depended on Gail to balance things out, to be their surrogate mother. They'd ask, where's the food? She tried to be cool, but sometimes snapped back, why don't you get it? The Zappas didn't even have a car, so Gail took the baby and hitchhiked anytime she needed to get groceries or do laundry. This is crazy, she thought, but also, it's tolerable. Remember, Gail, you wanted a life with no boundaries. But then, a boundary found her. Fate again presented a man, a guy named Larry, who turned up to audition. Frank found him not entirely musical. He was fascinated and decided they should record a double album together for his bizarre label. While there, the Zappas learned that Larry had escaped his mental health hospital and that he had tried to stab his mother at 16. Frank's reaction was the same as always. Don't worry about it. Then one day, Larry picked up a glass jar and threw it at Moon. That's it, Gail said. Larry was banished, 
but other visitors pulled dangerous stunts and were allowed to stay. Gail signed up for the freaks, but her child had not. The log cabin was becoming unsafe. One day, she took a tube of lipstick and wrote Frank a note on the master bathroom mirror. She grabbed the baby and walked out. When Gail eventually returned home, she and Frank moved to another house in Laurel Canyon, one with locks on the doors. They packed it with incredible art, musical instruments, and artifacts picked up while on tour, and loads of memorabilia. It also had an enormous basement, which Frank claimed as his territory, hanging a sign announcing Dr. Zircon's secret lab in Happy Valley. The house was still a constant whirl of music and people, but now it had a little more space to keep family and music separate. Their son, Dweezil, had been born just before the move, and Amit and Diva, another son and daughter, respectively arrived in 75 and 79. And Gail? Well, she settled into a role as a, quote, professional wife, telling friends it's a job like any other. She wanted to be good at it. Frank and Gail never made any decisions together. He knew nothing about the mortgage, the line at the grocery store, or how to change a diaper. She took care of all mundane things of life so he could focus on what mattered to him. You're the artist. It's my job to make things easier for you, she'd say. Was it because he was a genius? It had to be part of it, Gail thought. But it was more than that. Defy Frank, bother him, or get in his way, and it wouldn't be pretty. His anger at bandmates or labels could be furious, and she tried to stand out of the way as much as possible. Sometimes they did fight, their yelling echoing through the house. Frank was a control freak long before Gail. Even though the band formed as a democracy, he told the mothers how to dress more like freaks. He rehearsed them eight hours a day, seven days a week, and demanded a doctor's note for absences if they missed a session. Later, Frank renegotiated the band's contract and formed his own production company, which allowed him to control not just all future Mother's albums, but all his solo projects. By the time that happened, the band agreed. Frank was now not just the leader, he was the dictator. At home, he disappeared into his subterranean Happy Valley and made it clear he was never to be interrupted. He worked from the second he woke up until he went to sleep, and no one should go near him if he didn't initiate. Since Frank was, well, frank about everything, he would explain his schedule to journalists and then admit, the lifestyle that I have is probably neither desirable nor useful to most people. How else could someone record 62 albums in a lifetime? When people asked Gail about living with him, she was also equally frank. We get along because we don't talk. Moon, Dweezil, then Ahmet and Diva. Raising four children was Gail Zappa's primary role through the 1970s and 80s. Frank insisted they get as little schooling as possible 
because he thought public schools bred conformity. Later, when the kids passed their high school equivalency tests, Frank said college was stupid and refused to pay for it. Since there were so many cool things and no rules in the house, the kids' friends all wanted to be at the Zappas. Not only could they swear, they practically had to. Ahmed even claimed, fuck you, were his first words. The kids made music, movies, wrote, and cooked together. They listened to Frank's music, mostly, but also whatever they wanted from the huge library. Everything from Bulgarian folk to heavy metal. In 1985, Frank was hauled before the U.S. Senate to testify about obscenity in pop music as part of Tipper Gore's Parents Music Resource Center. He was asked if profanity-laden rock music was appropriate for children. His answer was an articulate and expansive screed against censorship and hypocrisy, surprising many on the committee and in the media. Then he was asked, do you believe there should be age indications on toys? What toys your children play with? Frank squirmed. He could not answer the question about toys and he coyly answered that of course his children could play with age inappropriate toys. This was clearly a person who had never fished an object out of a child's mouth or waited for it to come out the other side. Frank had been absent through most of his kids' childhoods, touring six months out of the year and spending the other six holdup recording. In 1979, Frank added a new studio to the house, calling it the Utility Muffin Research Kitchen. And although he was home, he was less available than ever. When Moon was 13, she slid a letter under the studio door. Daddy, I'm 13 years old. My name is Moon. Up until now, I have been trying to stay out of your way while you record. However, I have come to the conclusion that I would love to sing on your album. She ended the letter with a request that he contact her agent, Gail Zappa, and gave the house phone number. Perhaps she could do her surfer dude talk that made everyone laugh. Frank took her up on her offer. The resulting recording, Valley Girl, was an instant runaway success. It was a clever parody of the lingo and up-talking speech pattern that came to define all white teenage girls by the 1990s. At the time, it made his teen daughter a bit of a national punchline. By the 80s, that was the tone of Frank's musical satire, punching down more than ever before, even at the expense of his own daughter. His ever-rotating cast of musicians had become a little frat-like, and the jokes weren't that funny anymore. Even Frank's anti-censorship crusades made him a bit of a punchline, too parodied on SNL. Critics noticed, and fans noticed, but nothing would change in their hermetically sealed world of Frank. The jester-filled days of the log cabin showed themselves as what they were, still a form of feudalism, with Frank as absolute ruler, musicians and groupies as his court, and the source of his satirical wit, and Gail as a state manager, wet nurse, and consort who kept the castle. King Frank could then spend his time plotting musical battles, scheming new compositional territories, fighting contractual conflicts, and picking fights with leaders in other fields, from fandom to politics. Frank Zappa had become the snake biting his own tail. So out there that he became conservative, 
so obsessed with breaking artistic taboos that he turned his life into the epitome of tradition, at least at home. So it was a bit of a surprise when Frank started letting Gail do some of the band's business with Barking Pumpkin, the label he named after Gail's smoker cough. It was the 80s, and she had a little more time now that the kids were older. She answered the mountains of fan mail with catalogs offering shirts, videos, and other items not available in record stores. All of it deemed barf go swill. It was totally independent of the traditional music industry, and it was Gail's. She loved the challenge. She opened a recording and rehearsal studio called Joe's Garage, named after the rock opera Frank had recorded. Her experience dealing with the biggest freaks in California and listening to Frank fighting with labels for years was finally put to good use. Frank would brag, she's an excellent boss's wife. Everybody knows that Gail is the boss's wife. She's a mean little sucker. Though he didn't want to admit it, Frank Zappa was sick. He'd been feeling unwell for years, but the doctors couldn't find anything. But then, in May 1990, he was in the hospital with the cancer diagnosis. With the clock now ticking down, his response was to work harder than ever before. As things got worse, Gil organized parties so their friends could come say goodbye. It was a bit like the log cabin days, with odd arrangements of musicians playing and bubbles flowing. The only difference was that Frank went to bed at nighttime. On December 6, 1993, Frank Zappa died with the family around him and was buried the next day to avoid the press. And then, emptiness. Gail found herself in their huge house, alone, surrounded by a silence that had never been. Melancholy set in fast. She even missed picking up his dirty towels from the floor. But within the sadness, she found something else, a strange sensation of freedom. Before he died, Frank told Gail to sell his master recordings and get out of the music business. She did the first, but not the latter. He didn't tell her what to do with the publishing of all his compositions, so she kept it. It was a savvy move for Frank's legacy, and a fuck you to his will that he probably would have appreciated. She set up a Zappa family trust and used this to collect royalties and go after people who used the Zappa name without permission. She was ruthlessly protective of his legacy, serving papers not only on strangers, but also on former mothers, and even her son, Dweezil, who had become an accomplished musician himself and toured a show called Zappa Play Zappa. Fans turned on her, even though they were glad to get mountains of reissues. They gossiped about her mental health status, saying her visions were evidence of her instability and conjectured that she was squandering the family fortune on malicious lawsuits. She remodeled the house, became a big donor to the Democratic Party, and hung out with Tipper Gore, Frank's old nemesis back during the PMRC censorship battle at the U.S. Senate. Gail sent a legendary fuck you letter to Steve Jobs about the rotten deal he offered with Apple Music. And as to the kids, well, she fought with all of them, except Amit. But by the time she too was diagnosed with cancer, they all found ways to get along. 
Moon spent two years as her mother's caregiver until she died in October 2015. Gail's New York Times obituary portrayed her as an enchanting ingenue who had fallen into Frank's orbit. The piece mostly talked about him. Only a few really knew her, or thought they did. Her own children were shocked when they heard Gail's will. She had named Ahmet as head of the trust and assigned him and his sister Diva 30% each, while Moon and Dweezil both received 20%. The fallout was sad and ugly, as Ahmet felt compelled to serve Dweezil's cease and desist orders to stop using the name Zappa in reference to Frank, and with Dweezil defying him. The kids took to the courts and the press, giving incendiary interviews about their childhoods and their mother. Moon told the Los Angeles Times, It's complicated enough to be grieving the loss of a mean mom and then to find out she was meaner than I could have possibly comprehended. It's comical, the level of betrayal. They claimed her to be a cold, ruthless tyrant in the home and in business. Were those not words just as easily said about Frank? But Frank was the genius, and Frank was the breadwinner, so Frank was the king. And because he died first, he didn't have to deal with how his business became a family business. He left a mess, and after death he couldn't control who fixed it, for better or worse. But this isn't about Frank's business, or Frank, or Moon, or Dweezil, Amit, or Diva. This is about Gail Zappa, a self-described vestal virgin who willfully sacrificed her life to help musical dreams come true, first as an internationally renowned rock groupie, then as the queen of the freaks, a role that ended up being pretty traditional until she got her chance to wear the king's crown and try out his power for herself. This is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Daphne Carr. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahini. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spreaker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.